Well, uh, good evening, Praxis. Uh, glad to be here uh, with you tonight uh, online. Hope that all of you are doing well. And despite what probably feels like an extended, prolonged period of time of being sheltered at home, uh, at least for me, I, I know that that's the case for me, desiring to want to meet again at church and see everyone face to face, even if it means being six feet apart, uh, I believe that God is trying to help us to, to see and realize just how pre- precious in person fellowship really is in the absence of it. Uh, At the same time, technology is a grace from God. Uh, We acknowledge that despite its limitations. It allows us to continue to pursue Christ, to to be a part of community, pray with each other, and proclaim who Jesus is, even through our modest YouTube channel here at Lighthouse. It's been a firm reminder that the church is not a building, but a community of God's people. And so we want to steward technology and magnify Christ and grow in our faith as is the goal even tonight. So if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter as we look and read God's word together. Our passage this evening comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, and I will be reading verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. uh, The ESV reads, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the inerrant and authoritative word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have to come before your word, Lord. Teach us, uh, humble us, Lord, and uh, challenge us even as uh, we see how your word is clear and also applies to our lives. Uh, We come before you asking that you would help us, that your spirit would instruct us, and that uh, we would be able to just focus and meditate on your word now, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Nobody wants to be thought of as weird or strange. We wouldn't want someone to look at us that way upon first meeting someone. At least that's what I didn't want for myself growing up. Navigating those teenage years of life and transitioning to high school was a time of finding my place amongst a diverse student body population And it was an interesting time for sure. High school was one of those periods where everyone is trying to find their clique or group of friends where they could be accepted. Certain groups would congregate on certain parts of the campus. Uh, There was this cool basketball group who would congregate uh, around this area and all they would talk about and think about was sports and being into underground hip hop and rap. Then there were the nerds, no, no offense intended, um, who would study and finish their homework, and, and not necessarily procrastination, but actually getting ahead, 
so that they would have more free time on the weekend. And then there was the band and orchestra groupies who would always hang out with each other, eat lunch with each other, travel with each other. Then there were the cool fashionistas. And then there was me. Getting to school late in my shorts and bedhead hair because I barely slept the night before. I literally just rolled out to bed to go to school, uh, tired, not really in the, the mood to socialize, not because I was burning the midnight oil finishing homework for Calculus BC or Honors Chem, but because I was part of that computer game crowd, slightly different from the Magic and Dungeons and da- uh, Dragons crowd. And the derivative of my life was having fun, and the only thing that I could integrate for the best of me was time spent honing my dexterity and my reaction time for a first-person shooter game called Counter-Strike which required quick reflexes on the keyboard and mice. For many of us, high school was a microcosm and social experiment of seeking a place of acceptance, not wanting to be thought of as weird or strange. It was a time in our lives where we sought to fit in, to place a great deal of attention and care upon ourselves so that we might be accepted by others, to really feel and experience the major pressures of fitting in with a crowd, And in some ways, we want to fit in with the crowd even now. We wouldn't want to be ostracized, to be marginalized. We want to be accepted, even if it means being part of the mainstream. Even if it means some sort of compromise on our part from who we truly are. Because we don't want to be made fun of for who we are. And that was certainly the mindset of men and women that Peter addresses his letter to in the book of 1 Peter. A group of people known as Christians, disciples of Jesus, followers of the way. Or as Peter wanted believers to view their identity here, suffering sojourners and exiles. A group of people who face immense pressure to conform to the former way of life prior to coming to faith, and to conform to a culture that was opposed to God, both theologically as well as ethically, by how they live their lives. And so Peter writes in our verses tonight to encourage us, as well as instruct believers, to stay true to who they are in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our key idea of this evening. And the key idea is this, that as followers of Jesus, we are called to live distinct, godly, and obedient lives even if it means suffering. And to do that, we're going to look at three principles uh, to help us live this out. And the first principle is found in the first two verses. And that is this. Pursue God's will, not your flesh. Peter begins by drawing the attention of suffering believers to this one fact yet again. That Christ suffered in the flesh. If you remember last week when Pastor Gavin preached, he covered chapter 3, verse 18, where it said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. You see, the temptation for us is to forget that Jesus not only died to bring us to God, but that he is also the ultimate example of what it means to suffer like God. 
specifically Jesus Christ. By remembering that the Son of God suffered, we can be encouraged and persevere in our pursuit of God's will. Peter gives more thought to that idea as he resumes this theme in our verses even today. He connects and builds upon the thought of Christ's suffering. Why the repetition? Why does he camp out so much on Christ's suffering so much? Well, brothers and sisters, because theology informs and drives our actions. It drives our practice. Praxis. The more we come to know Christ and his sufferings, the better equipped we will be to live for him. Peter, out of all the disciples, would have known the human experience of suffering and death, especially the one that Jesus Christ faced, if we're even not even talking about himself. He would have known and seen that Jesus sought to consistently obey God, to do the will of the Father, even if it meant suffering for it even if it meant various trials he would face, even if it meant ultimately a painful and torturous death on a bloody cross. Not only the physical anguish of crucifixion, Jesus would even experience an even greater terror none of us could even fathom, neither spiritually, physically, or emotionally. The wrath for sin that even made Jesus humbly ask in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his arrest and trial, is there any other way to save man from God's judgment for their sin? Is there no other way? Must I drink this cup? Yet Christ endured suffering. He, being fully God, yet at the same time fully man, experienced the cup of wrath that was poured out upon him. When he hung on the cross, yet he sought to do God's will to the very end. Even if it meant suffering for it, even if it meant ridicule and scorn along the way, even if it means being mocked and looked down upon by others, he was disrespected, he was called names, yet he would endure Dure and bear his own cross and carried up to the point where he was nailed to it. Brothers and sisters, what Peter wants us to understand here is that we worship, we follow a crucified Messiah, a suffering Jesus. Take that in for a moment. Let it sink in for a bit. For some, it's a scary thought because of the implications it might have for me and you, right? and what we might and can expect to experience in our own lives as followers of Jesus. But that is the exact thought that Peter wants believers to consider this evening. That is why he says in verse 1 to to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The word for arm yourselves means to, to make ready, to equip yourself with. The word has this military imagery behind it that would have conjured thoughts of preparation and personal resolve during times of war, an urgency that requires preparedness rather than passivity. You don't go into a war unprepared, without thought, without considering the enemy and what they might have planned to oppose you. And in our case, a spiritual war is at hand, a spiritual battle that requires us not to put on physical armor, but the spiritual armor of God, as talked about in Ephesians chapter 6. 
And so what does that mean for you as those who are engaged in a spiritual war to please God? It means that me and you are to be resolved in having the mind of Christ. That we might think like Christ. To have the same mindset of Christ had in his own suffering. Our battle preparations begins inwardly. It begins with our mind. Therefore, we are called to arm ourselves with the mind, the kind of mindset Christ had in his suffering, that me and you would have the same type of willingness to suffer for the sake of righteousness, just as Christ did. A willingness to continue to do God's will and obey him, even when things get tough and you might have to suffer for doing so. Peter continues and says something rather peculiar at the end of verse 1. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And if you're like me, you're maybe thinking to yourself, it sounds as if suffering will put an end to sin in my life. That if I just suffer enough, I won't ever sin again. But scripture never makes that promise, nor states that we will attain some sort of moral or sinless perfection in the present life. It never teaches that the progress of sanctification comes to an end after achieving a certain level of suffering that will lead us to a state of spiritual nirvana in the present life. For most of us, our experiences seem to affirm this truth as well as we go through suffering personally. Because suffering often leads us to become what? Bitter, angry, frustrated, discouraged, discontent. And so seeds of doubt in our minds and help and makes us question our faith in God. We become resentful or develop a cynical view of God instead. So Peter's not saying that if you suffer, you'll stop sinning and be perfect. So what then does Peter have in mind here when he writes to these believers to cease, that they will cease to sin? Well, there's been several views offered to try to make sense of the specifics of what Peter meant. The two I mentioned being the most convincing and supported by scripture. The first is this, that what Peter possibly has in mind here is similar to that of Paul and his thought in Romans 6, uh, verses 6 through 7, where he speaks about the power of sin over Christians being broken since Christ has suffered in the flesh on the cross. Now, while this is supported by scripture and totally biblical to affirm as a truth, we can't necessarily assume that Peter drew upon and relied upon Paul in writing this letter to scattered exiles in Asia Minor. We can't necessarily assume that he has the same thing in mind, but rather he can very possibly have a unique context in mind as well as when he uses the phrase, die to sin within the backdrop of suffering. And the second view, which is the most convincing given the context of what we just read, as well as what immediately follows after, is this. That Peter says that believers who do suffer in the flesh, yet continue in obedience, give evidence that they have broken away from a life of sin. In other words, Peter is saying that those who suffer unjustly because of uh, their faith demonstrate that they're done with sin. That they have chosen the path of obedience and living for God, even if it means suffering for it. That they've counted the cost of following Christ 
yet are committed to please and honor God, rather than yield to outside pressures or ideas of how they ought to live. It means that they are moved on from their former, they have moved on from their former way of life. That their conversion marked a pivotal marker of transformation where their affections have changed from the past to the present and their trajectory towards the future. And this is the, con- uh, uh, the connection to verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is the purpose for seizing from sin. The purpose. More than just a mindset and way of thinking, it leads to a proper response that we ought to have. Arming ourselves with the mind of Christ in our suffering is for the purpose of living for God in the remaining time that God has allotted us. The remaining time that he has given us to steward. And what we are to do with that time is to obey God's will rather than living for ourselves and our own passions. This is nothing short of a decisive change in lifestyle, a decisive breaking away from the past. The words human passions here, or lusts in other translations, such as the NASB, describes a life that is ruled by cravings or sinful desires. Now, notice there how I said cravings and sinful desires. Cravings can include good cravings as well, and pursuits. Yet at the same time, those good cravings can be idolatrous if we crave that thing or someone more than God himself. So, Praxis, how does this challenge us, both you and me? Well, the first way that this passage challenges us is that there is only two ways to live. One in obedience to God, or one in pursuit of human desires, revealing that our love for idols rather than God reigns supreme in our hearts. As believers, we are called to have the mind of Christ. Christ obeyed and did the Father's will, even when it wasn't convenient for him. Even if it meant suffering. Even if it wasn't comfortable or the easiest thing to do. Even at the expense of self-preservation. Even when he was tempted to make excuses. And I think this is a challenge for us because we often don't arm ourselves with this type of Christ-like mindset in our own lives, do we? Rather, we obey and do God's will only when it's convenient and comfortable for us. Instead, we obey just because it appears to be the path of least resistance. We're passive in our obedience because of an undisciplined lifestyle and habits that don't contribute to having the mind of Christ. So brothers and sisters, what areas of life or desires have you not submitted to God, which may be an idol in your heart? What is it that you are still hesitant to deny yourself because you maybe rationalize or feel requires more reasons than what God has already said in his word in order for you to obey? What areas does God desire for you to obey him with greater commitment, even if it means potential suffering? The Lord desires for us to arm ourselves, to be active in putting on this mindset of Christ so that we might cease from sin and grow in our obedience to God. Well, now that we've looked at what it means to pursue God's will and not our flesh, consider the next principle Peter is calling us believers to in our passage this evening. 
That is to desire holy distinction, not cultural conformity. Verse 3 reads, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Let's just stop there for a minute. What Peter is essentially doing here is setting up a, a contrast between a commitment to obey God versus a commitment to our own passions, our lusts. And what Peter's doing here is painting this very instructive black and white canvas of their past life prior to conversion and what characterizes their former life to who they are now as followers of Jesus Christ. It's a distinct contrast. It's kind of like some of those TV shows I used to watch when I was younger. Uh, Growing up, uh, when reality TV started dominating uh, the airwaves, which led to the death of many popular sitcoms, such as Friends, uh, Seinfeld, uh, there were these these many, uh, there's these reality TV uh, series that that aired that were built upon showcasing and highlighting a dramatic change in life, a, a pivotal change. An example of this would be extreme makeover where people would undergo plastic surgery, uh, see a fashion consultant, a hairstylist, a makeup artist, to look like a totally different person externally. Or the extreme home, uh, makeover home edition, which would give a, a needy family who were suffering a, a great loss or gone through great tragedy or pain in the past, a totally new, bigger, a more generous furnished home, both inside and out. Or perhaps some of you may have heard or even watched this, The Biggest Loser, a show that saw contestants who were up for the challenge of demonstrating the most drastic percentage change in body weight through strenuous exercise as well as disciplined diet and eating habits. And the common denominator behind all these shows for the purpose of entertainment was to highlight a a dramatic contrast from the past to the present, where one's desire, or at least someone on their behalf who sought intervention, sought a distinct transformation to take place. And this snapshot or documented story would showcase this dramatic before and after. The greater the distinction, the more intrigued and shocked the audience would become. And just like the TV shows built around stories of distinct before and after personalities and characters, Peter desires for the story of believers' lives to be marked by distinction from their former and to their present. That they might not continue and have a sharp change from their worldly past and living for their lusts to now living for God. And the challenge for us today is that we also would not just settle or cave in to the cultural quo that characterizes our past when we did not know Christ. Practice what this means for us in the context of 1 Peter is that uh, there should be a a distinctive and ever-growing break from our former way of life in the flesh to our present life in Christ. And as believers, our life story should be one of visible grace where there's a definitive break from our past and growing distinction from the worldly culture that we live in. In other words, our lives should be set apart It should be a stark contrast from the world. For example, consider the distinguished life that Daniel lived as he sought to glorify God under pressure when the king wanted him to eat and drink the foods his people consumed. Okay, this was a foreign king. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. 
But Daniel desired to please God rather than please man. Those who did not worship God. Rather than defile himself with the king's choice food and wine, he sought to please God, to live an uncompromising life that was distinct from those who did not know God. He would not make room for compromise or loosen his convictions just to please God or be accepted by others. Or consider the distinct lives Jesus calls believers to when he says in Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In our verses tonight, what Peter's essentially saying is this, enough is enough. You spent enough time living the way you did in the past before you heard the gospel and placed your faith in Jesus. You now need to use your remaining time here and make it count by living distinct lives set apart for God. You see, believers have already spent enough, times on, enough time on experiencing sin. So Peter's saying, you've had enough of that already. You need to get that out of your system. As one who is no longer dead to sin, but a redeemed new creation in Christ. The type of mentality and way of thinking where you would want to sin just one more time or spend more time indulging in your, in your lusts is what characterizes Gentiles rather than what characterizes God's people. What does Peter mean when he uses the word Gentiles here? Well, I think especially in light of all that's going on with racism, injustice, talks of ethnicity, it's important to at least briefly clarify what Peter means here. The word Gentiles comes from the word ethne, from which we derive our modern, modern word ethnicities. In the Bible, there's a distinguishment between Jews and Gentiles. And what this means from the Bible's perspective is a distinction between Israel, that is ethnic Jews, and everyone else who would have been considered a Gentile, all other nations and ethnicities. And the purpose of distinction is not one of superiority. Uh, Jews are not superior, uh, superior ethnic-wise compared to other races or ethnicities, nor are the others inferior. In fact, one of the only benefits, according to the Apostle Paul, was Israel's earlier and special access to God's word, the oracles of God, according to Romans 3, verses 1 through 21. Yet even ethnic Jews were under the curse of sin and needed faith in Jesus Christ to be justified and to be saved, just like everyone else. So what Peter's getting at here is an understanding that the people of God, uh, would have been known as ethnic Jews, were supposed to live a life set apart for God compared to the other people groups, comprised of other nations that worshipped other idols and gods. And so God expected Israel's conduct and lifestyle to be different from the surrounding nations and ethnicities since he made a covenant with them. It was how they were supposed to demonstrate that they were a distinct and set apart people for God 
a holy people that worshipped and, and lived for a holy God. They were supposed to be a banner nation that attracts other people groups, ethnicities, and nations through how they lived. They were supposed to represent God by, by their lifestyle, by being a community of love, a community of justice, and their worship of God. And by doing so, they would be a blessing to other nations and display to other people what it meant to be in relationship to the one true God. Not for selfish boasting or the exclusion of others, but to attract other people and people groups and ethnicities to turn from powerless and unfulfilling idols to worship the one true God. You see, it was always God's plan to save people from all nations and ethnicities. That was always plan A to begin with. And it was always plan A that is even being conducted even now. That the gospel was not just meant for the Jews, for it would have been too small thing for God to only save Jews, but also that the gospel, that those of all nations, tribes, and tongues might be saved as well. So rather than favoring one group at the exclusion of others, God works out his plan of redemption by revealing his saving love extends to all who might believe in him. So when Peter says, the time is past for doing what the Gentiles want to do, he's simply saying that the time has passed to live in a way that unbelievers who do not know God would would live. It's now time to live a holy and set-apart life now that you now do believe in God. Because now you are considered to be the people of God in Christ. You're no longer to live as non-Christians, those who aren't Christians. You're no longer to engage in their patterns and way of sin anymore, their idolatry. And Peter names specific categories of sin to break away from here. The word for sensuality means any behavior that is controlled and unrestricted and usually understood stood to be of a sexual nature, or maybe even perhaps acts of violence. Excuse me. The word passion speaks of indulging and usually refers to the context of sex and acts of self-gratification. The word for drunkenness is pretty self-explanatory, has to do with habitual and excessive drinking that leads to a lack of sobriety or self-control. Orgies were banquets or parties that were characterized by immorality and drunkenness. Drinking parties, well, is exactly what it sounds like, social drinking parties. And while this is not a comprehensive list, it deals with the vices and sins of society and culture back in that day in first century Rome, when Peter was writing, which is also prevalent even for today. The common thread in this list is a lack of self-control that leads to behavior that either is harmful to oneself or harmful to others. Uh, The last sin listed is lawless idolatry, which means a profane and unholy lifestyle of idol worship. And all that's to say that our lives after Christ should be distinct from that pattern and example of sin that our former, former lives exhibited. Our formal life where we would have celebrated and indulged in these things should be no more. Look with me now at verse 4, where it reads, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So what should you anticipate if you desire to live distinctly for God rather than conformity 
to the culture of your former self when you weren't a believer? Shock. Surprise. We're now seen as being uncool. And they're going to probably vocalize it too. Or talk behind your back, at least. That person is such a killjoy. Rather than being one who goes with the flow, you're boring. Have no life. Labeled and ridiculed as a puritan or goody two-shoe. And there's a, a, a certain tension we must see in this passage. For some, it challenges our preconceived beliefs that we need to and actually can win over the culture. That our witness is primarily through the work of showing culture just how similar we are to them. And to establish this sort of common ground with the hope or that our lightness or assimilation to their habits and desires, their interests in the world, is what's going to win them over to Christ. That we just need to be more like the world and be preoccupied with what's in vogue. But Peter challenges that notion by the reality of how we'll most likely be viewed if we don't participate in, if we're not in agreement with the world's sin, when we're not part of the mainstream consensus on what is morally right and good, when we don't celebrate immorality, and the reality that even former, friend, the reality that even former friends and family may view and treat us differently as a result of this. It may displease them that we're no longer seeking or running in the same circles or find happiness in the same activities as them. The new crowd of Christians or that church you seem to always be with upsets or disappoints them. And disappointment leads to hostility towards you. Yes, even verbal attack, even slander, or as verse 4 says, malign because you're no longer with them you stop going to these parties you stop giving in to your lustful impulses you're not pursuing idols to the same degree and measure that they are and because of that the reality is you will likely experience a verbal attack at the very least and while we may not become martyrs in the west at least that's not something that we necessarily ex experience or see compared to other nations where there are maybe greater visible forms of persecution and suffering for their faith. We will suffer criticism. We may be labeled as being a, a snob, being judgmental, maybe even called derogatory terms. We might hear, think, like, you know, ever be treated like, you know, ever since you became a Christian and started going to that church of yours, fill in the blank. Praxis, these verses should challenge us to desire and maintain distinction rather than conformity to the culture of sin and lifestyle that does not please God. I must qualify that not everything in culture is bad or explicitly sin or idolatry. But we must examine our hearts for why we desire conformity to sinful practices when verses in the Bible explicitly show and tell us and teach us how we are to live for God in obedience for him. And I was meditating through the list of vices and sins here. It got me thinking about 
underlying motivations which would still be thin, sinful in itself. Because sin is not always just in the act, but even in the thought, right? Like when Jesus, is, uh, Jesus said that if you so much as to look at a woman with lust, you have already c- committed adultery in your mind. And so as I was meditating on this passage, this, these, these uh, lists of sins got me thinking, what are the motivations, sinful motivations, that maybe lead us to actually pursue and maybe live out these sins in an explicit way and manner? Obviously, drunkenness and sexual immorality are clear sins and such. But what are the motivations that would tempt me and you to capitulate and conform to our former way of life before we became believers, to compromise? And I was reminded of how sometimes our hearts can be very deceptive. That there may be multiple heart idols at play at the very same time. That there are sometimes greater, perhaps I should say, underlying motives in our hearts to do exactly what Peter encourages not to desire and pursue. You see, things like sexual immorality, drunkenness, drinking parties, passions, sensuality, they're often fruits of underlying sinful motives that fuel our behavior, that demonstrate, or I guess, fuel our bad fruit in life. For some, It may be a hunger for acceptance. Maybe that hunger for acceptance of others, fear of man, is a dynamic that leads to discontentment that will lead you to sinful activity because you demonstrate a lack of self-control. Or maybe anger or a high view of self might lead you to think it's okay to reward yourself or to practice escapism from your difficult circumstances with drunkenness, or other enslaving addictions. You see, if anything, this passage should teach us our hearts hurt or hunger for something because it's not finding that satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Yet as believers practice, we must cling to desire distinction and conformity to Christ rather than pressures of conforming to the culture around us. And I'd like for us now to consider the final principle that Peter is calling believers to in this passage. And that is to rest in your future, not in man's judgment. Rest in your future, not man's judgment. Verses 5 through 6. Peter anticipates a potential response by suffering sojourners who desire to live distinctly for God and now being slandered by those who continue to engage in their sinful practices and ways. And his response is meant to be an encouragement for believers, while at the same time, a sober reality of what will occur for those who do not realize the ultimate consequence of their sinful lifestyle and continued rejection of Jesus. The encouragement Peter has in mind directs the attention of believers towards their future eternal life. More on that in just a second. But first, we must deal with what Peter means for unbelievers giving an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Uh, Peter speaks to the reality that no one here in verse 5 escapes God's judgment. That's what the verse means. He's drawing attention to the fact that God is the judge of both the living and the dead. What that means is that God is the judge of all, comprehensive. Death does not mean an escape from God's judgment. 
Those who mock Christians or speak ill of believers, seeking to live a righteous life, will have to stand in the courtroom of God one day in their personal trial before God, who will judge as well as execute them to eternal condemnation and judgment. The gospel is news of forgiveness in Christ as well as news of judgment if one continues to reject Christ in the present life up to the point of death. And there are only two ways to live with two possible outcomes. Brothers and sisters, when we face ridicule or we're wrongly treated for godly living, we can relax knowing we're not the ultimate judge of those mistreating us. Isn't that a comfort that we can place our hope and rest in? That God is their judge as well? It's an encouragement because it means that we don't need to let hostile words and mistreatment get to us. We can entrust judgment to God who will ultimately approve of our faith in Christ and carry out justice against those who reject Christ. This doesn't mean that we should wish or call down judgment and eternal condemnation on others, that we will be like uh, what was labeled as James and John as being the sons of thunder, like calling down judgment of, of th- God's wrath, and uh, thunderous wrath upon uh, those who did not, you know, or oppose Jesus Christ at the time. That's not the posture that we ought to adopt. Peter perhaps knows the heart's tendency to want to return evil for evil, to re- return sinful words or attitudes with that in kind. to take matters into our own hands for our own concept of justice or being right. And we do so, we very well might be doing so sinfully with unrighteous anger. So as believers, we should never give up hope in proclaiming the gospel to those who reject Jesus and those who mistreat us. even as we continue to seek to do what is good and keep our lives honorable amongst those who do not believe. Just as Peter earlier encouraged in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, that we keep our lives honorable before unbelievers. Verse 6 continues, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Well, it looks like we've come across uh, another apparently strange or confusing statement that Peter makes here in verse 6. The gospel being preached even to those who are dead. Hmm, what could that possibly mean? Well, um, one interpretation says that Peter is speaking of those who are spiritually dead, not physically dead. In other words, Peter has the same mind, a similar train of thought that Paul had in, uh, in his letters, when you proclaim that those who are spiritually dead might be made spiritually alive. And what this does is it avoids a problematic or unbiblical thought that there's maybe a, perhaps a second chance to resp- respond to the gospel after you die and still be saved after you physically died. So then what does this mean? Well, it's best to understand that Peter is speaking about believers who are physically dead. Believers who have already died and are currently in the presence of the Lord in spirit. And while they're currently spiritually alive, they await their future resurrected physical bodies, as promised in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. The group of Peter Peter is talking about in verse 6 are 
those who believed and followed Christ when they were physically alive here on earth. They were judged and maligned for their faith by unbelievers, which included the martyrs of the past. Yet they will be resurrected and prove that the gospel was not pointless because they truly will experience eternal life while unbelievers' short-lived life on earth will terminate in eternal judgment. It's also an encouragement as we continue to live godly lives because what Peter says here is a reality check for us. To not have a myopic perspective in life and are tempted to renounce their faith and no longer live for Jesus so that they can gain acceptance and approval of the society. It really gets rid of this idea of YOLO, right? Or you do you. The fact that God is the judge of all means the approval of men is short-lived and therefore should carry uh, little to no weight or value in how we assess ourselves or impact our obedience to God. Praxis, how these last verses of finding rest in our future in Christ should be a comfort for us. While those who seek to malign us see our pursuit of godly lives as pointless, a waste of this life, they do so because this life is really all that they have as they seek fulfillment and satisfaction in what cannot fulfill and bring satisfaction. In empty cisterns that cannot quench. Sin and worship of idols never satisfies. It is why we as believers don't have the mindset of let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. The ones who think their best life is now are those who reject Christ in the present. For them, judgment awaits. And rest is not found for their future until they come to an end of their self and turn and trust in Christ. A sobering thought for those who have not heard and embraced the good news of Jesus Christ, yet an encouragement for those of us in practice who have trusted in Jesus is to continue to live distinct, godly, and obedient lives, even if it means suffering for it. And these are the principles that we are to adopt and cultivate in our lives so that we might live in greater obedience. We might live in greater distinction to please and honor Christ. Our future is secure and Christ took the judgment we deserve because of our sin. May we find comfort in this truth and hope those who would malign us also find comfort and rest through Jesus one day. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the time that we could spend in your word to really look at these maybe hard truths, the topic of judgment, uh, the difficulties that we can expect and, and, and suffering for our faith, Lord. Yet I pray that we would also be encouraged to stand steadfast in our faith, Lord, that we might arm and equip ourselves with the mind of Christ, Lord, to have that kind of humble mindset and dependency on you as we seek to not only trust in you, Lord, day by day, but also live to do your, your will for us as you seek greater and greater obedience, Lord, greater and greater setting apart from our former way of life to the praise of your glory and to honor you. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.